Hello. Welcome here tonight on this beautiful evening. Um, thank you for joining us. My name's Jessie French. I'm the Deputy Creative Director of M Pavilion. Uh, I just want to quickly um, acknowledge that we're on the land of the traditional owners, um, the Bunurong people, and acknowledge any elders past, present, and to the future that might be here tonight. Um, and also acknowledge that um, sovereignty was never ceded. Uh, with that, I'm going to very quickly pass on to Near Metro's Laura Phillips, and she'll do an intro of everyone else. Thank you. Thank you, Jesse. Um, and thank you all so much for coming this evening. I think we've been very blessed with some lovely weather, which is a nice change from what we had last year. So thank you for coming out. Um, as Jesse mentioned, my name's Laura Phillips. Um, I'm the editor of Open Journal. Um, Open Journal is the content platform of Neo Metro. Um, Neo Metro was the first property developer in Australia to be a certified B Corp. And we started, we launched this series actually at the M Pavilion three years ago now. Um, I suppose to really have this open discussion about um, this intersection between design, investment, governance, um, and to, and I think open that discussion up to really kind of discuss what would make more sustainable growth for Melbourne. So to introduce the topic tonight, um, build to rank communities, um, I suppose it's kind of framed as, as we're all kind of acutely aware of raising house prices, um, meaning in Melbourne and Sydney seeing around a million dollars at the moment, um, while the gap between wages and house prices continue to widen. So build to rank communities um, involve development designed with the intent of long-term living, sometimes indefinite leases, providing long-term housing security for, for tenants. Um, we can... We'll obviously kind of discuss between the panellists this evening. We're kind of blessed with a variety of opinions which you can have hopefully kind of a, a look at the debate from different sides to really kind of flesh out what this model is, how it could be applied to Australia and I suppose the viability of um, uh, its, its input into housing affordability as, uh, in, in a broader context. So to introduce my speakers this evening, um, to my right I have Sam Tarasco, who's the Managing Director of Salter Properties, who've planned one of the first build-to-rent developers in Australia, set to be developed in 2020 in the Docklands. I think that's correct. Um, first to my right, I have Matthew Palm, who's a postdoctoral research fellow with Transforming Housing Research Network in Melbourne University. Um, and his current research focus includes affordable housing finance. Um, to my left is Nerida Kunisby, who's the chief economist of REA Group and one of Australia's leading property market experts. And then to my far left is James Tutton, who's the director of Neo Metro, co-founder of Smiley Mind and a board member of the Contemporary Arts Precinct. Um, so I might kind of start by asking a series of questions to the um, panel, and it's kind of basically questions that are framing kind of a broader conversation. So if anyone does have a question, um, feel free to voice it and we can yeah, have more of an open chat. So I might start with, firstly, what are the benefits for tenants to live in build-to-rent developments versus a conventional tenancy pattern, which is mostly formed around mum and dad investment stock? Rita, I might start with you. All right, so I, I guess the, the biggest problem for renters in Australia is uh, they don't have any certainty of tenure. So, you know, you can move into a rental home. Uh, the owner of that rental home may decide to sell. Um, they may decide to move in. Uh, and you may have been in there for one, two, three years, or you may have been in there for 10 years, but you don't have any certainty of tenure. So I guess that's one problem. Uh, the other one is that market rates, uh, sorry, rent is determined by market rates uh, in Australia. So um, being a renter, when you're earning an income and your income's going up, and you know, that's maybe not such a problem because rent, you know, rents go up over time, but if your income's going up over time, it's not a problem. But uh, when you get to retirement age uh, in Australia, it is really problematic because if you're living, say, in an inner city area, that, it, that area is becoming more and more popular, uh, your rents can also start to increase at, at quite a rapid rate. And if you're on a fixed income, it does become quite tricky. So um, build to rent, I mean, the way we've seen it being developed overseas, um, in, in particularly in Europe, you know, Germany is a good example, and also in the US, uh, a lot of the um, developments not only provide certainty of tenure, so, you know, people can move into these, um, these homes and they can stay in them for all their lives, you know, 20, 30, 40, 50 years. Uh, and also um, the rental uh, levels are often fixed as well, or the increases are fixed. So they have a little bit more certainty long term as to how much they'll be paying rent. So I guess that's, they're probably, I think, the, um, from my perspective, the two main reasons why it does need to be considered in Australia. Thank you. And um, I just want to pass to, to Matthew, who does have obviously a background in the States, and you've probably seen that model kind of come to fruition in more of a kind of a broader state. Well, I, 
I can also speak as a renter. It, you know, the landlord's response is a bit more timely when they also own the building, right? So if the air conditioner breaks down or you've got plumbing back up um, and the people that manage the building are also the people who own the building and they have someone living on site to work with you because the financing works where they can afford that, you get problems fixed a lot more quickly. Um, that's, of course, not universally true. There are, you know, different... Uh, there are rotten apples in, under any policy framework, but same could be said of tenants. Um, so for me, that would be the most obvious benefit of build-to-rent, particularly the on-site support that in larger buildings it can provide to tenants. And Sam, from your perspective, why, I suppose, did you kind of pursue this, this line of, of development and what, what benefits do you see for the tenant? Um, well, I think most of the benefits have been covered. Uh, the level of service um, as well as security of tenure, certainty of rent payment uh, in terms of reviews is uh, very important. Um, I mean, I suppose why, why we see an opportunity here is we think that affordability is becoming a problem in Australia and so we actually think that there's going to be a move to a greater percentage of the population who will choose to rent for various different reasons, sometimes out of necessity, sometimes out of choice, be it you know, a, 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 a desire to be a bit more mobile and not be sort of rooted to a, you know, to a home and a mortgage. Um, so we see that there's a, there's a changing preference here in Australia. There's a lot more, lot more people actually choosing to rent, and particularly if the standard of service being offered by the landlord, being a, a professional landlord rather than what currently happens, it's effectively a cottage industry. You know, you've got a large number of very small landlords who really don't really understand how to manage a, properly, uh, a property properly. So... Um, I think, uh, you know, for, from our point of view, we just see that there's a changing need in, in, in society generally and I think we can respond as a professional landlord and, and, and produce a really good product. And, James, from your perspective, how, uh, yeah. how have you seen housing trends shift and how do you think this will fit into that? Um, I mean, I, my, I'm a, I see significant benefits to um, renters in terms of a... Um, the model, uh, but I don't think those benefits actually relate to affordability in a substantial way. I think they relate to security of tenure, and along with security of tenure, there are a whole lot of um, emotionally the benefit of knowing where one stands with a property, and uh, to Sam's point, which is very relevant of having a professional landlord as opposed to a kind of cottage industry, um, but wh whether or not a property is owned by you know, mum and dad investors who have bought it off the plan from their accountant in Toowoomba or a Canadian pension fund um, ultimately um, doesn't impact uh, affordability. What will impact affordability in a substantial way is uh, policy change and government change, uh, particularly, a, a, you know, in a regulatory sense. Um, but there, I don't see those as issues which are connected specifically to this model. Uh, they're issues which could be examined whether or not one's looking at the existing ownership structures, people buying, etc., etc. And I also think there's potentially a substantial social downside to the model if you look at... Um, retirees in Australia, the average retiree has $200,000 in super but has $700,000 in home equity and uh, the funding of retirement substantially comes from looking at a pooled asset base of both uh, home equity and also superannuation. Now if you have a, a whole um, uh, generation coming through who do not have that home equity, uh, the implications in terms of uh, funding uh, a group of people who are already uh, underfunded for retirement is, is significantly problematic but it's a long way off so we're not really thinking about it at, at the moment that much but it's a real issue. Well, I suppose this is part of this kind of broader challenge. If another generation is coming through without that equity pool, it's going to be kind of a much broader issue. So I might pass to Nerida. I mean, from your perspective, how do you think it affects affordability? Yeah, I, look, I think at the moment um, we do, you know, afford, I mean, there's affordability, which is kind of an average income person not being able to afford an average priced home. You know, that's, that's kind of for, for, for most of us. Uh, but then we also have the social housing implications. So, you know, there are people on extremely low incomes who, who really can't afford to, to be in the market at all. So, um, you know, that, that market is probably the most desperate at the moment. Um, if you have a look at uh, the outcomes from the National Rental Housing Affordability Scheme, 
uh, there was billions poured into that scheme over several years, and at the same time, the number of uh, social housing actually went backwards quite significantly. So, you know, that, that didn't work. Um, a lot of the reasons why that didn't work um, was partly because we were in the midst of a housing boom. So, you know, obviously it was much more profitable for people to not do um, that sort of housing. But there was also a, a lack of accountability. And um, it is hard to make um, mum and dad investors or individual investors accountable to government uh, at a large scale. So, you know, you can, you can do it individually, but to try and do it, at a, you know, across you know, thousands and thousands of homes, it's really difficult. But if you start to look at getting institutions involved, uh, the, accountability, the accountability becomes a lot easier because if you've got AMP owning tens of thousands of homes or you've got Lend-Lease owning tens of thousands of homes, you're only dealing with a, a, far, um, a far smaller pool of people that you have to deal with. So from that social housing aspect, I think it does does address a lot of the... Or potentially, can, it doesn't address it yet, but I think potentially it can address those issues. Um, for, you know, the average person on an average income trying to afford an average home, um, you know, that that's pretty much a supply problem. Uh, it's a jobs problem, like a jobs location problem, but it's also a supply problem, particularly in Sydney, where we don't have enough housing... Uh, to, to provide affordability to, to average income earners. So, you know, any measures that alleviate supply in big cities where a lot of people still want to live, I mean, that, that, that is a, a, an affordability problem uh, addressed. So, you know, I don't think it, it doesn't address affordability, but I still think, that, you know, there needs to be policy change and taxation changes to do it appropriately. And I suppose the, this conversation is more that it's not there's no one silver bullet, but if there's kind of you know one model which is being developed, it will kind of you know prompt broader kind of policy change, which is I think which which is where we're going. Um, Matthew, from your perspective, what have you come through in, in your research into you know how this model could affect both the housing supply challenge and affordability? Well, I think it could be very important for the supply challenge because the demand is, as was mentioned earlier, uh, related to the jobs, right? Um, you have, where I'm from, people that fly into the San Francisco Bay Area, they're going to make a name for themselves in a startup in five years, and they're going to fly back out and move somewhere else. They're not going to buy, they're going to rent. Well, what that does is it jacks up prices for everyone else who doesn't have that nice tech job. Those folks get displaced. So increasing the supply for where there's jobs is, I think, critically important and something that this program can do. As for affordability for folks who are very low income or extremely low income, I mean, most of the policies I see talked about here in Australia are geared towards first-time home buyers. And don't get me wrong, those are great programs. My parents benefited from a similar program in the States, but, you know, folks who have been chronically homeless for 10 years are not served by those programs. So there's a need to take a look at things like public housing renewal, which is being very hotly contested right now here in Melbourne, and figure out how can we maximize the amount of rental housing provided for extremely low-income people uh, through those processes. And it's not an either-or, it's a yes-and, especially when you have an inclusionary housing program. Um, you're getting market rate and affordable housing at the same time. Um, you'll oftentimes see affordable and market rate developers in California, where I'm from, team up to get things approved. Um, and when there is that sort of classic tension between you know, neighbors and the developer, um, having the affordable housing advocates there at the table because they've got that 20% inclusionary that they're going to be managing uh, provides a bridge to the community that helps ease the process. Um, so I, assuming that certain state policies are, are implemented in a way that's open-ended enough to allow creativity and flexibility, particularly inclusionary zoning, I think there's a real opportunity for it to make a difference for both your average income earner as well as the folks that are trying to get out of homelessness. And Sam, what about from your perspective? You know, who do you envisage will be your tenants and how, what, what do you think this model will really give to them in, from that affordability perspective? Yeah, I, I think, uh, um, as, as we've said, I don't think... Um, Build to rent is the solution for affordability. It's actually a bit of a, it's it's the it's a reaction to the lack of affordability in the home market. So less people can afford to buy a home, so therefore you need more rental housing. So um, 
I think that, that that's, that's important to this debate. And uh, um, the other thing I think we need to understand, though, is the first step is to actually make at-market build-to-rent housing viable because that needs to be able to work before we can even start to consider how we deliver you know, uh, affordable housing. Um, and the build-to-rent is often confused um, as a means of bringing forward affordable housing. I mean, that's a subset of build-to-rent. And there's a you know, big focus now with government, I think, and, and in industry as to how to make build-to-rent viable just on a market rent basis at the moment. The other thing I'd say is um, yeah, I think build-to-rent is going to play a very important part in our overall housing supply. Um, if you look at our current vacancy rate, and Nerida might correct me if I'm wrong, but we're, I think we're at about 1.6% um, vacancy rate in, in Melbourne as a, as a general average across the board. That's an extremely low vacancy rate. And, you know, most government policy that we've seen in the last 12 to 18 months, in our opinion, and as developers, and we're seeing it on the ground, it's actually limiting access to stock by investors. Investors are really out of the market at the moment. So you start from a point now where you've got 1.6% vacancy rate. We're not selling an apartment at the moment to any investor because they're just, for various reasons, discouraged from the market. Roll forward 12 months from now, as some of the supply that's currently in the pipeline starts to be delivered... There's a lack of supply in the marketplace. Um, you know, funding is very difficult for projects. I actually think we're going to have a very significant supply problem um, in the very near term. So one reaction to that is to try to encourage more build-to-rent, large-scale delivery of um, for-rent apartments. Um, and I think, unfortunately, from my point of view, I think the government is being a little bit slow off the mark in actually finding ways to encourage that, whilst at the same time being very discouraging of, if you like, the traditional... Uh, delivery of investment product. So, I suppose that's one of the big challenges to get this model, just like any kind of alternate funding model for housing off the ground. It's kind of government support which is going to be supportive of that and incentivise it. Maybe we'll start with James. Do you want to comment on what you see as the governance challenge with this model and other alternate funding models to kind of get this off the ground? Um, I mean, Sam would have a much more informed view than I do on... Um, uh, the model, but I scratch my head a bit I- in terms of actually uh, the economics of it, because if one looks at, um, say, a-, a yield of uh, 3%, and that- that's a, um, an ungeared yield on uh, an apartment building, um, and uh, that's uh, capital coming into the market, potentially uh, at inflated uh, property prices, I, I just look at it in a risk-adjusted sense and scratch my head a bit as to how that can um, actually be sustainable uh, in, in the long term. And yes, there's a lot more capital in the Australian market and it's a lot more, in, in, you know, it's a lot more international than it's historically been, particularly in regard to property. But I, I scratch my head as to how that can work. And I, I think the only way it can work is if there are um, uh, policy changes from a government perspective which um, uh, you know, effectively alleviate um, some of the uh, cost pressures and they may re- relate to planning outcomes, etc, etc for um, both real estate developers and, and landlords and that's, that's the only way I personally can see the model working in the long term and if you look at a lot of the commentary around you know, why build to rent is now working, a lot of people are saying well it's working because commercial property yields have come down so far that uh, capital is now flowing through to residential, well, that's not going to last forever. Th- th- those yields, you know, move up and down um, it, with, with the movement of the uh, economy in an overarching sense, and I, I think just to assume that now it works is, is a bit naive. And from a governance perspective, perspective, narrative, from your perspective, do you think, um, what do you see in terms of planning and tax developments that probably are required to kind of, you know, get this off the ground? So I, I think there does need to be a switch to how we um, to tax breaks that are given here in Australia at the moment. Uh, we have zero percentage investment in institutional build to rent. I mean, Sam's starting, but you know that that's very much early stage. Uh, if you go to the US you know, or UK or Germany, you know all all other parts of the world, the proportion of institutionally owned rental housing is actually quite high. And if you go over there and you talk to people who are in that space, they, um, they are getting tax breaks from government. And 
they're not, you know, things like negative gearing exist, but there are also other tax breaks that are given to these large companies that are providing rental housing. So at the moment, you know, until we see that switch from negative gearing capital gains tax concession, which are 100% focused on mum and dad investors making losses on their rental properties, uh, to providing some sort of tax incentive, uh, we can't get over that low yield problem. And I think, you know, that that's the issue, that it's just so... Um, you know, it doesn't make sense from a return for many investors to get into this space. And, um, you know, I think tax incentives will be the, the way to do it or some sort of planning concessions. I don't, I don't know, but something has to change. I would also say that it doesn't need to be uh, giving up um, CGT um, concessions or negative gearing concessions. They can potentially stay in place and then there can be changes in terms of tax incentives for corporatised money because I, I think realistically if you um, remove negative gearing um, the impact in terms of supply uh, for uh, the apartment market in Australia would be it would be devastating you just wouldn't be able to sell apartments to investors and that would have a significant flow on effect in terms of affordability is yeah, my thinking. You don't want to make any rash changes. Yeah. And Sam from your perspective I suppose what would incentivise you as a developer? Well, um, you know, you're entirely right. Uh, the commercial model is not a, 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 a very beautiful thing. It really is um, a very low return model. And yes, the argument about the convergence of commercial yields and residential yields coming together as an argument for why suddenly we're looking at built to rent holds some water. Although what you need to probably remember is in the, in the property market, traditionally, you'll have a developer who delivers the product and you'll have an investor who buys it. So in the commercial market, whilst yields have come down and they might be at 4.5%, 5.5% for good quality assets, you've still got a developer who can deliver those assets, build those assets, and at a yield of 45 to 5.5%, still sell those assets to an investor and make a margin. So you've got a functioning market. You've got the deliverer of the product, the risk taker, and you've got the buyer at the end. With the residential sector, yes, you can get probably to those yields of 4.5%, in your, you're saying 3%, but 4.5% if you don't make any margin, strip out all your costs, um, and basically you work on a return on cost type of arrangement. What that means is you can't be the developer who wants to sell it because the only way you can get to the right yield is to sell it at nil profit. So which developer is going to invest time, effort, risk, you know, for, you know, for the thrill of selling a, an asset for no profit? Um, and equally, the investors who are going to buy it, they're not the risk taker. So it's unlikely that they're going to come into the market um, in a great rush to take the risk and deliver this product to hold it. So that's a fundamental problem in the market. Um, so even the argument about the convergence of yields, I think, uh, has some flaws to it. Um, and why are we doing it? The only reason we're doing it is because we do hold a, a larger diversified portfolio of industrial, commercial and retail property, and we're just looking at it as a risk mitigation strategy. You know, we're diversifying an income stream. Yes, we're lowering our overall average yields. But for us, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a risk-reward, risk-return sort of a play. Most investors in this sector will be single-sector focused. So they're not likely to take that kind of approach um, that we've taken. So I see a bit of an issue in actually encouraging large-scale delivery of this product um, without any government intervention or any other sort of incentives. It's just not going to... Just the returns aren't there to do it. And I suppose that's why it requires, you know, so much more regulation from government, especially if it's going to be approached on such a scale. So, Matthew, from your perspective, what do you see as kind of the shortfalls in governance in terms of tax and planning reform? A lot of the early built-to-rent buildings in the United States uh, got lending through the federal government, uh, through risk-sharing schemes, and that was done intentionally uh, because the government recognized that there was a need to build an adequate supply of rental housing um, to support labor market flexibility, uh, particularly at the end of World War II. So without some sort of overarching government support to help the sector get going, like the support it received in the United States, like the support it received in the United Kingdom, it's, it, you know, it's just going to be a few one-off projects here and there by ambitious developers and there isn't going to be a lot of structural change in the market. I mean, it's that simple. So I'd also add to that that w w there's a bit of a risk in as much that the funding which potentially flows through is probably less likely to be local 
funding and therefore that capital can disappear as quickly as it arrived in Australia. So you could look at building up an industry um, and have it properly funded and then in slightly changed global financial circumstances that funding's not there and, and, and the, the, the concept starts to stall and I, you know, I think we need to be aware of that as well. Yeah, the other thing I'd say on the funding point um, is that if you go to the US and you look at the, uh, the, the yield out of this um, sector and compare that to your borrowing rates, there's actually a margin between the borrowing rate and the yield that you're getting. In Australia, if you're, if, you know, if you're getting a 4% uh, net return, you're probably borrowing probably a bit more than that. So in fact, you know, it's, it has to be an ungeared model uh, and that makes it very difficult to deliver it on a large scale. You know, 200, 300 apartments, you're talking project value of $150, $200 million, all equity. Um, that's an extremely difficult uh, Thing to achieve. We're, we're also not hostile to foreign uh, investment if it helps us achieve our affordability and supply goals. So Australians have $100 billion of your retirement funds invested in our affordable housing. Uh, thank you. Um, so I don't know what type of regulations or limitations exist here in Australia that are keeping foreign money out. I also know of ambitious build-to-rent developers in San Francisco who are uh, from Germany. And they just happen to have the money on hand to take a risk for a building that um, is going to be housing several hundred people, um, uh, about 10% of which are formerly homeless individuals. And it's so whatever, you know, constraints are in that regard, you know, might need to be reevaluated if, if, if it's in recognition that it's going to help Australians uh, get a secure, stable place to live. Well, I think this is one of the the biggest challenges of this model, as with kind of any alternative funding model, is, I suppose, that knowledge gap. And with that knowledge gap, whilst we're still learning and as an an urban country, we're still kind of in quite an infancy in terms of developing large-scale apartments, um, what the risks would be in terms of, you know, gaining that knowledge and, I suppose, the mistakes that you can make on the way. Nerida, would you have a comment on that? So just in terms of the risks that the model presents, if it has that kind of knowledge gap between, you know, not trying to kind of see what's been done in the UK, see what's been done in the US, and trying to maybe look at that within a uniquely Australian market context. Yeah. Um, Okay, so I I guess we can learn a lot from the US and UK because they have done it well and and it's working and it's profitable and, you know, they've they've been able to, to make it run. I think um, I think we do need to look at how we get foreign money into this sector, and um, you know that that's a problem at the moment. That the current structure of the way foreign companies invest is in Australia, most of them do it through a managed investment trust, uh, the MIT structure. Uh, the MIT structure allows for passive. Investment, so you know things like an office building. The, the Australian government is fine for, for offshore groups to invest in an office building or a um, or a shopping centre or even a farm, but they not they're not allowing it at the moment for residential. And the reason they're saying residential is to be one of the reasons is is to be excluded uh, is that um, it's not passive and anyone investing in residential is relying on capital growth as opposed to to um, to rental returns and and it's kind of true you know you look at anyone who invests in housing um, you know any of you that have got investment property you probably you may be earning a fairly low yield but you, you you're kind of banking on the fact that you're going to get good capital growth on that investment property so, so, you know, that, that's the current restriction and at the moment we're not allowing money in and it is being looked at and, and it will be looked at on a case-by-case basis. I mean, the Australian government's not going to say no to the, you know, the Canadians if they say, right, we're going to pour billions into affordable housing. Uh, they will look at it, but, but that's, that's the current model at the moment and, and it is restricting funds going into that sector. It's also worth noting that, although it's not under this model, but if you look at... Um, uh, just regular residential development, uh, it's more and more difficult to have offshore buyers because getting financing for developments when the buyers are offshore, uh, the larger Australian banks basically don't treat that as... They assume that that 
contract is going to fall over come settlement. So that in turn creates a situation where developers uh, at the moment aren't in any way, you know, you know they're penalised for having offshore money come in from uh, single investors overseas, which again is basically rejecting external money coming into Australia to fund the development of housing stock, which, you know, I think is a, a problem. I understand the risk issues behind it, but it's, it, it's limiting development stock. And Sam and Matthew, from your perspective, how do you see the risks of this of this model, and maybe how they can be mitigated? The risks, the risks in build to rent. In terms of establishing the model and having, I suppose, learning how to establish it. Well, I, th- I think using overseas as a comparison is always wise to go and have a look at what's going on. I've been cautioning our team within the office: don't go overseas and just take that as a blueprint for what will work here, because quite almost certainly you'll get it wrong. You need to really understand the fundamentals of the Australian market and what the Australian market is looking for in terms of a, a product type and a product mix and a service level because, you know, in the US and the UK, they have very di- different expectations um, of housing and I think if we just go and copy it, um, it'll, it'll be um, a disaster. Um, I think the other thing that, I, I, you know, in terms of a risk for, for the sector here and, and, and it getting off the ground, and I think you'll have a lot to say about this, but is uh, from, a, from a funding point of view... Um, we really do not have a, a deep funding market for this sector. Um, over in the U- US, for example, you know, they've got Freddie and Fannie who, who are huge in the sector and they've got a, a deep pool of other, other funding mechanisms that are right behind um, this built-to-rent sector and they understand it. Um, you know, are there any bankers in the room? Just before I say anything. No. Um, look, I, I think, <laughs> I think that the, the banking sector here really um, is just not making good effort to understand build to rent very well. I mean, simple fundamental things about, you know, questions about, um, you know, you tell them you're doing build to rent, uh, well, where's my pre-sales? Well, selling, I'm, I'm leasing them. Um, well, where's my pre-leases? Well, you go and tell me a tenant who's going to commit two years out to, to, to this sector. Well, how am I going to know you're going to release it? Well, go and have a look at the building next door, which was sold... 70% to investors and it's fully leased and there's no vacancy and rents are coming in. They just don't seem to have the desire yet or the template to actually go out and understand the sector and I, I think it's a really big opportunity actually for our, for our banks to get involved in a, in a, in a sector that's going to add value to our community, our society, um, but they're just not understanding it and I think actually they're choosing not to understand it. And Matthew, from your perspective? I think what it's really going to take is a few Australian examples that are successful um, and then maybe a lot of whatever's holding people back that they're afraid of, um, particularly those with the capital to invest in these buildings might, you know, dissipate. I mean, to some extent, I feel like a lot of this is psychology that we're dealing with. Yeah, we certainly, from our point of view, I think once we get the first one up, we've proven it, um, there'll be a bit more support because there'll be an example to point to but um, I don't think it's that hard to actually point to examples in the market that are predominantly building, predominantly occupied by renters that they can use as a proxy for understanding how built-to-rent is going to work. Agree. Okay. I suppose we've kind of we've covered off a lot of issues in terms of finance and governance. I want to now move to, to design, and I suppose from a from a development perspective, from a developer briefing and architectural perspective, there's would be many kind of different considerations when you're going to hold the asset yourself. And I suppose that comes down to choosing low maintenance materials, choosing natural materials, and choosing materials which I suppose every building should do, which knows that it's going to wear in, not wear out. So James, from your perspective, what would you see would be the design considerations of having a build to rent? development? Um, you know, the first thing I think of is actually giving um, more flexibility in terms of if someone's coming in on a, call it a 10 year lease or a 5 by 5 by 5 lease and they want to make modifications to the property, uh, you want to design it in a, in a way such that they can actually make those uh, modifications and that may mean not providing a shell per se but, um, you, you know, I'll take an example straight off the top of my head. You might put an undercoat of paint on and then you're handing something across at the commencement of the lease where they're deciding what colour they're going to 
paint the interior, etc. So there's an amount of customization um, to be done. Uh, another thing, and it's kind of related and kind of not related, I think a lot of people look to affordable housing in the context of affordable housing potentially for families, and um, this is not necessarily a model particularly suited in Australia to families because the better rental yields come from one and two bedroom apartments, not from family-sized uh, apartments. So I think we, again, need to be a bit cautious about how it interfaces with, with affordability issues in the context of, of families. And just still on the following from the design question, Sam, what did you have in terms of your considerations with developing your new development? Well, I think the biggest problem with, with building property is that once you've made the decision at the start, it's very hard to change it. And um, back to my point about not going overseas and sort of seeing what they're doing and coming back and replicating it, um, you've got to be very careful about your product mix and your product type and how that can be adapted over time. And talk about durability of materials and everything, that's fine, but I think it's about how we can adapt the actual product over time. Um, you know, we recently sent one of, our, one of our executives over to the US on a study tour and he came back and said, I've got the solution, it's all one-bedroom apartments, they get the best return, that's what everyone wants. Two days later, I'm at a property council presentation. Woods Marsh stand up and say, hey, I know, we know what it is. We're building two-bedroom apartments. That's what everyone wants in, uh, in the US. And I said, well, there's, there's two... Within two days, two, two, two opinions that are just totally different. Um, so what we're trying to do is actually find a solution to um, grow as the market grows. You know, I think at the moment, yeah, probably we think it's right to say that typically it's smaller apartments, smaller households who are the, if you like, the early adopters of built to rent. Um, but we actually think that as our, again, as our demographic changes, as millennials are getting older and the next generation's coming through, that you will actually have larger families uh, looking at this, at this sector. So we're actually ha tinkering with how we can have, you know, one and two bedroom apartments that might be next door. They might have interconnecting doors, for example. So you can have a family that goes from a two-person household to a three- or a four-person household. Very difficult to achieve. Um, you know, you end up with two kitchens, for example, so we're thinking about, you know, can we have mobile kitchens, can we wheel them out when, you know, one's no longer needed. All those sorts of things um, really difficult to predict and we're just trying to think of how we can be as flexible as possible in the delivery of the model. Not to add another conflicting opinion, but Matthew, from your experience, especially in the States, what have you seen has, you know, been these tenants of design that's, that's followed through those, that model? Um, real water heaters, like... I, I don't know if the water heater I have in my current building is uh, common here, but it wouldn't pass code where I'm from. So I, a building that's got tenants' needs in mind, as opposed to the tenants' needs as an afterthought, sounds kind of exciting for me, to be brutally honest. Um, I, I liked what I heard about the flexibility in design and about linking up um, apartments or unlinking them or making things mobile. That's, that's also very appealing because you know, the age demographics of our society are changing, right? Household structures are changing. So, you know, we've been building buildings and homes of a certain size for hundreds of years under an assumption that households are always going to be that way. And now part of the reason why we have this crisis is that uh, household structures are different. Um, so buildings that are going to experiment with that sound very cool. Um, is it standard here that the tenant has to buy the refrigerator? Or did I just get shafted? Mostly, yes. What? Like, that's, like, a, we're, okay, so there you go, right? Like, I mean, how, how, do you, how do you participate in a labor market where you might have to take a job in Brisbane and you've got to move in a month and you're supposed to buy your own fridge, buy your own oven, buy your own this, buy your own that? What? Like, where do y'all get the money for that? Like, Matt, Matt, every time we put a fridge in, someone says, I've got my own, can you take it out? Oh, okay, <laughs> so... Gotcha. Okay. So it's, I, I just got to get up to speed here. Um, but in theory, a build to rent, a, a building with tenants needs in mind might factor in things like that for tenants who are more mobile. Um, uh, so I, I think it's just Australia is ripe for experimentation. Um, and one of the reasons why I'm here is because there's a lot of potential for Australia to get it right and to do it better than we did back home um, because we have certain issues right now. Um, yeah, it, yeah, it's okay to laugh. Take a deep breath for that one. I know, yeah. I laugh when I'm not crying. Um, but yeah, so um, particularly because there's the will 
um, and the public is interested, and it seems like the moment is right. So it's, it's a very exciting time to see what can happen here, especially in Melbourne, because you said you know, you're a young country from an urbanization standpoint, but you've got, you've got the amenity thing on lockdown. Like, I know you like to complain about the trains here, but whoa, they're amazing. <laughs> it's good to have some perspective. Um, on, that, on that point on experimentation, I might um, have some kind of party comments from everyone, maybe before we open up for a, one or two questions. Um, but from narrative from your perspective, do you see, you, are you optimistic that this will be kind of a, a template which will solve some of the issues that we've spoken about tonight? Um, yeah, look, I mean... The, the one thing it will solve is tenure. So, I mean, that that is one solution to, the, to tenure. Um, it may solve affordability. Um, but also I think it, it does seem to be opening up the discussion around what are some alternative forms of, of housing in high-rise because, uh, you know, we, we see it on our site on realestate.com.au, the number one uh, type of apartment people are searching for is two-bed, two-bath. And the only reason they're doing it is because, uh, from an investment perspective, that seems to be what's easiest to rent out. Um, it, it doesn't... You know, it's, it's kind of, I guess, there's a perception that that's the best type of apartment to buy, but, you know, is it, is it the best type of apartment going forward? So, um, you know, looking to places like Hong Kong, you know, in Hong Kong, that's the least affordable city in the world, when Sydney's number two. So, you know, they're experimenting with very tiny apartments. So, um, you know, apartments the size of a car park uh, and trying to make them places people can live. Uh, if you go to the US, they're experimenting with, with communal types of living. So, you know, whether that's shared laundries, going back to the shared laundry model, going back to shared living areas, shared gardens, um, you know, trying to create more of a community as opposed to, you know, perhaps the way that most apartments have been built in Melbourne and Sydney, which are, you know, very much a single single occupancy type model. So, you know, I think I think if it does open that up, open up that discussion, I think that's a really good thing. Um, I, I agree for, in terms of tenure. I think um, what the model does is give security to renters. I, I think in a lot of ways by doing that it normalises renting as a, and, and makes the... Um, I don't think renting stigmatised, but um, it makes us emotionally less dependent on the great Australian dream of owning a, a home. Um, and there may be some flow-on effects um, in terms of uh, affordability, but I, I tend to think they're going to come from other related changes around, you know, funding and, and tax and, and so forth. I, I think Sam's point's very relevant in terms of um, the adaptability from smaller apartments to larger apartments. If you look forward in terms of the growth of Melbourne, uh, there needs to be a point in time when it becomes normalised for families to live in apartments and um, just you, you look sheerly in terms of accessibility of, of work uh, educational institutions, hospitals, etc., etc. It makes sense that we either live in an urban or an inner urban environment, uh, and until we have uh, housing stock in terms of apartments which is suited to families, that's going to be hard to do. So, I, you know, I think there's definitely a change coming in terms of who lives in uh, apartments, i.e., not just young people, not just downsizers. And Sam, from your perspective, I. I Despite all the sort of the, uh, the issues facing the sector, I think ultimately the market will find a way. Um, you know, if we, we have an undersupply of housing, which I think we're heading for, if we have an undersupply of rental stock, the market will rebalance itself and it will find a way. It just might not be as quickly as, as we'd, all, we'd all hoped. And I think one of the things we have to watch out for, we're all hoping for some government regulation that will actually facilitate the sector. Um, what we hope for is that we have government who is properly consultative with the industry so that they don't actually make changes that actually hamper the sector. And um, we have seen some changes, you know, in the, in the sort of the built-to-sell, if you like, uh, sector where changes have been made that have been detrimental to the market, in our opinion, and I think it's starting to be proven out in the way we're seeing a bit of a shift from what's been an oversupply to a bit of an undersupply of stock. So I think really strong collaboration between industry and government is, is really critical. Uh, and if, if that's done properly, I think the market will ultimately deliver this sector of the market because I think it's needed. And Matthew, some parting words on your part? What was the question? <laughs> Just in terms of if you're optimistic about this template, I suppose, solving some of the issues that we've spoken about tonight in terms of affordability and supply. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's going to be really interesting to see. I mean, there's a lot of creativity right now. Every... Every jurisdiction in Melbourne has its own definition of affordable housing right now. I mean, it's just 
you're seeing this like let a thousand flowers bloom, you know, kind of happen in uh, private and public sectors. Now, those who know that analogy know it doesn't end well, but um, I think in this in this context, it'll be really exciting to see what happens. Um, and ultimately, it it recenters the conversation around the people who are going to live in the building, build to rent, a, aka um, we're building for the person who's going to live there, as opposed to building for an investor. And that I'd like to think that that's going to yield some innovations that a lot of us who rent are going to really like. I completely agree as a renter myself. Um, I might open it up for a few questions. Probably got time for one or two. Um, does anyone have any questions they'd like to ask the panel? The community housing sector is very interested in the conversations that are going on at the moment. From a developer and a tenant perspective, what do you want to make sure that we keep in mind when we're approaching the build to rent and the conversations that are happening at the moment? Uh, as it relates to the community housing well, sector? As, as in how, how the community housing sector is looking at participating in this model and the provision of affordable housing given that I've heard tonight and I've heard in the conversations that, um, that, that in order to have the yield, looking at the, like in the community housing sector, we, you know, we celebrate if we get 60% market rent. You know, we think we've, we've done a good thing even though we're thinking, you know, the 75 to 80 is where we, where we hit, but we still think that we have a role and believe that we definitely have a place in delivery of affordable housing. Look, uh, I mean, and to be brutal and, like, to be completely frank as well, I'm good with that. Yeah. Look, I think the community housing sector definitely needs some... I mean, it, to, as I said at the very start, uh, it's sort of like a subsector of build to rent. I mean, build to rent for me goes right from, you know, social, community housing, key worker housing, at-market housing and premium housing as well. It's, it's, it's the whole spectrum. Um, what we're focused on at the moment is really trying to find the way of making it work for the at-market sector, being, you know, sort of like the, the point in the middle. And it has to work for that. Um, because um, I, I think the only way that then we're going to get uh, good quality community housing outcomes is through collaboration between um, community housing sector, government and, and developers. And, you know, we're, we're more than open to be delivering community housing. I mean, we think as a, as a part of the overall housing mix, it's really, really critical. But to be honest, we're, right now, um, off the cost base that we have to incur to get a project up, we struggle to make a return off an at-market rent. So there has to be something that's given um, by, the, by, by government, by, uh, generally, to, to actually make it, make it viable. I would say two words, capital subsidy... Um, is going to be really critical to helping make build-to-rent that's targeted towards low-income households feasible. Whether that's given to a private developer in exchange for some units set aside, it's the missing piece. There seems to be a, an almost religious belief here, and it's the same back home, that planning schemes and rules and design tricks can replace cold, hard subsidy, and I'm afraid that's probably not the case. The other thing I'd say, just on that, I mean, we, we did have uh, the NRAS scheme, which you'd probably be familiar with. Um, on paper, actually looked like a pretty good scheme, but really, really badly executed um, and uh, very difficult to manage on an ongoing basis, and it basically just fell apart. Um, you know, you, you had um, a licensing system that unfortunately was allowed to become a traded commodity, so all the benefit that was bestowed by getting a licence was almost traded away by on selling the licences. So that was a real problem. But then the actual method of monitoring your tenant, um, you know, do they comply with the income requirements and all the rest, it was so stringent. You know, we did sell some apartments under the NRAS scheme and we've got investors today who still haven't received their subsidy because their NRAS provider hasn't been able to provide the appropriate documentary evidence. That's just that's not going to encourage investors into that sector if they can't be certain that they get into it on a certain premise that they're actually going to get you know, the, the return that was promised to them. Maybe one more question? Thanks. Um, has, has, do you know of any research that's been done? Have they surveyed people who've lived long-term in build-to-rent communities to ask about their satisfaction with the experience. Because I think about the psychology of growing up thinking you're going to own a home, and I grew up in a home in Ohio with a big yard, and then the shift to 
if you live with children in a high-rise, are they missing out on something? So I'm just wondering if there's any research results on people who've lived in those communities. Yeah, there are quite a few successful examples of high-density happiness. Um, I think you guys had a panel on that. Um, most of the good examples I've seen are either in Europe or in Canada. Um, and, I mean, it's about access to open space, shared open space, um, which has other side benefits that private gardens don't, for example. So um, adequate provision of public parks near high-density housing, um, walkability to schools in very high-density buildings on, on-site community spaces um, can help facilitate a sense of community that um, I, I think the evidence shows is as strong, if not more strong, than what you can get in single-family homes. Um, but part of that will also require a mindset shift as well. I mean, a willingness to try um, something different. Than, um, I mean, for some of us, ran away from the suburbs screaming, and like I, I love where I live now. Um, and my backyard is, is um, Edinburgh, Edinburgh Gardens. Um, and it's delightful. And yeah, you know, there are lots of strange people there at some hours. But um, it's a really enjoyable space. And, and I don't mind the apartments. And I think that that cultural shift is happening. Uh, it's in, it's interesting. Um, I've, I'm from Melbourne. I moved to Sydney a couple of years ago, and uh, the view on apartments in Sydney is very different to to what it is in Melbourne. And, and when we talk to first home buyers in in Sydney, they they're like, "Yeah, first home is an apartment," and they're kind of um, you know used to the idea of living in an apartment potentially long term. Uh, when you come to Melbourne and you say, you know what do you want to buy as your first home? Everyone's like, I want a house. I want a, you know, a small house. I want to start with a home. It might be in Richmond. It might be in, you know, Tarnay, whatever, but I want a home. So I think in Melbourne in particular, and, and the rest of Australia, but except for Sydney, I think people are still, um, you know, they still want the single-fronted family home. And we can see, again, we can see it on site. You know, the most searched-for home on our site is four-bed, two-bath, two-car garage, 650 square metres, uh, at a at a price point of six hundred and fifty thousand, and you know you're not going to you can't find that in Sydney. So people are like, well, you know. But then also the other thing, they want that house, but they want to be near good schools, good public transport, good retail, low congestion. So you know, there's this kind of mismatch between lifestyle and housing type. Uh, in Brisbane, if you go to Brisbane, you can get that. You know, you can get that low cost, you know, relatively low cost home in a great area. If you come to Melbourne now, you, you can't get that. You can get a, an apartment in a great area or you can get a big home in a not so great area. And so then we start to see trade-offs being made and, and you know, and that's, that's what's happening in Melbourne at the moment. I think eventually we will shift to being more... Um, we will get used to apartments, but at the moment we're still very wedded to our single, single homes. And just on, on that, just to finish, I suppose that's what's really kind of premised this entire speaker series um, was a bit of research which was done by Billy Giles Courtney with the Heart Foundation, which is all about well-designed density can support um, positive physical and, and mental well-being. And I suppose it's these conversations which are kind of trying to broaden the conversation about uh, different, different ways we can do that, different ways we can incentivise that and different ways we can kind of provide alternate options to people to, to be in those contexts in a, in a, and to support the sustainable growth of the city by doing so. Um, so I might wrap up there. I'm sure um, speakers might hang around for a bit more if anyone had any questions. Um, but firstly, I want to ask everyone just to thank, uh, join me in thanking the speakers for their time tonight. And lastly, if you're not already, I urge you to um, go to openjournal.com.au and subscribe because we have kind of further of these discussions and it'd be good to see you again. So thank you for coming.